Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Without condemnation, to call upon thee the heavenly God as upon a father, and to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, both now and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, Father Joseph. Before Dr. Marster gets up here, I just want to share with you one little short story that took place this week. When I was ordering my business cards, I had to reorder some business cards for the Institute. And the lady on the other end of the line answered from Jamaica, because, you know, now they're off and, no, you know, you don't know where you're calling when you call these places. Jamaica, and she said, oh, she saw the business card. Did you teach something about the Catholic Church? And I said, I knew I, I had someone who was interested. And she, I said, no, I teach, I teach sacred scripture. I teach the word of God. And um, she says, oh. And I said, do you go to church? And she says, no, I don't. I said, how old are you? And she says, I'm 31. And I said, you don't go to church? And she says, no. And I said, well, you got to get yourself right down the street to the local Catholic church. Do you know anything about the Catholic church? And she says, well, I went to a Catholic high school. And I said, and you're not a Catholic? She says, no, because, you know, Catholics worship Mary. They don't worship God. Well, my friends, we had a really nice conversation for about 45 minutes. And she promised me, and I made her promise to give her word, she was going to the Catholic Church this Sunday to go talk to her priest, okay, and to go and ask Jesus to be her friend, to be her God, and to ask and to find out what he had planned for her life, okay? Now, I'm not setting myself up how great that is that Deacon Sabatino did that. I'm just telling you, you got to be willing to talk to people. And here's somebody on the phone. I don't care. You call the phone company. You call, you stand in the grocery line. Wherever it is, Christ is asking you to talk to people, to tell them the gift that he's given to you and to share that with other people. I encourage you to do that. Okay, that's enough. I'm way over time. Where is Dr. Marshner? Did he leave? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> All right, please welcome back Dr. William Marshner. Oddly enough, I do not remember ever having committed to give lectures on papal primacy at Vatican I and Vatican II. Did I? Oh. And you gave the lecture on the wickedness of modernism to somebody else? Oh, well, all right, never mind. 
Last time I presented to you the ideas of Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, all insisting that the Catholic Mass is an abomination because it is a false sacrifice on the ground that there is only one sacrifice in the New Testament, that of Christ on the cross, and any other sacrifice would be some sort of pagan thing. So Luther's primary grief was against the sacrificial character of the Mass. That's why he never wanted to be said alone. Because if you're offering a sacrifice, you don't have to have a crowd around. You can offer it for the benefit of the living or the dead or people absent, people there. But if it's not a sacrifice, private Masses would seem to be wrong. Hmm? All right. I want to start out tonight, before I get to the Council of Trent, I want to start out with an interesting, interesting passage in Scripture that shows you, I think, shows you very well that Luther and Calvin must have missed something. Okay? I mean, after all, you're going to say you're going to rely completely on the Bible? Well, here is a an obstacle to their position right from the Bible. Well, it's in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 10 in 1 Corinthians. And here's a bit of context first. Back in chapter 8, St. Paul got into a long, long discussion about whether you could eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Some people thought you couldn't do that, and others people thought, well, it's neither here nor there. The idols are baloney. And, uh, of course, along the way, he has to tell you, yeah, 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 you, 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 you can eat that stuff, but be, be aware not to give scandal to those whose faith is weaker than yours, and so on and so on. And, of course, the issue came up because... Um, in the ancient world, the meat industry was a sideline of temple worship. Most of the meat that was brought into the city was brought first to the temple. There it would be received, blessed, looked over, something retained for sacrifice, and the rest sent out to the local butcher shops. And some people said, well, it, 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 it didn't start in the farm or the butcher shop. It came through, the, the, it came through that horrible temple. So Paul is interested in reassuring them, but, but be careful not to scandalize anybody. But then, after several interruptions, he gets back to this topic again in chapter 10. All right. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, this is verse 14. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge ye what I say. 
The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Question mark. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Question mark. For we, being many, are one bread and one body because we all partake of that one bread. Now, look at Israel after the flesh. Okay. Are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? Yeah. What am I saying then? Am I saying the idol is anything? Or what's offered in sacrifices? No, 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 no. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. And I would not have you in fellowship with devils. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table or altar and the table of devils. Okay. Now then. Here, the issue has changed slightly. It's not about meat that comes from the market. Now it's about meat that's part of the banquet at the pagan temple. Okay. They're going to sacrifice some oxen down at the temple of Zeus, and as always in connection with that, there's a nice bull roast. Can we go? Okay. And this time, Paul says, flee idolatry. All right? Now then, the message to say clear of the Christian temple, of the, the, the pagan temples, is expressed in the oddest sort of way. First of all, he starts this disquisition against idolatry by talking about our Eucharist. Right? The bread we break, isn't it communion in the Lord's body? The cup we bless, isn't it sharing in his blood? Yep. Then he talks about what the pagans offer, they offer to devils. And then he said, look at the example of Israel, if you partake from the altar, you become a sharer in the altar of sacrifice. Well, I don't want you to be part of the altar of devils and also the altar of the Lord. In other words, the Lord has an altar. We have a sacrifice. Don't go mixing up attendance at our sacrifice with attendance at these false sacrifices. Right? And can there be any question but that talking about the Eucharist? Huh? It's the bread, it's the wine, it's the table or altar. If you share in the Mass, you are sharing in the sacrifice of Christ. In other words, the Mass is a sacrifice. Okay? That's why you can't combine Mass attendance with devil worship. Sacrifices at other places. All right? 
I think this passage is proof positive that already for St. Paul, the Christian Eucharist is a sacrifice. It's our sacrifice, we have our altar, and our sacrifice, and, and to, to attend Mass puts you in communion with our altar. If you take the bread and the, and the wine that's been consecrated, you share in our altar. Yeah. So all the way back in Scripture, there is good evidence that the Mass was being understood as a sacrifice. Now then, does the Scripture tell us how to put this datum in 1 Corinthians 10 together with the datum in Hebrews chapter 9 to the effect that Christ has offered himself once for sin and doesn't have to do it again. Does the Bible itself tell us how to put those things together? No, it doesn't. Okay. It was up to the uh, talent of the fathers of the church to see how to synthesize. Okay? And um, let me put it to you this way. The fathers of the church behaved like Catholics. Why do I say that? I say it because when Catholics find two things in Scripture hard to reconcile, guess what they do? They hang on to both. They don't throw out either one. Hmm? Does, is Scripture full of recommendations of the, the happy state of marriage? Yeah. Does Scripture also contain warnings against marriage? Yeah. We hang on to both. Yes. We have our celibates, we have our married people. There are lots more examples like that. All right. How then are the sacrifice of Calvary and the sacrifice of the Mass exactly related? In the period between the time that the reformers put their stuff into print and the actual convening of the Council of Trent. There were a number of important writers on our side who took up the cudgels against the Reformation. I mentioned some of them to you last week. I said none of them are household words. You probably still never heard of Clictovius. But... Um, uh, he's one of these, these people. And what he comes up with is to explain the connection this way. You've got one self-standing sacrifice and you've got a dependent sacrifice. The Mass is doubly dependent on the sacrifice of Calvary. You cannot separate the two. Okay. You can't cut it off and pretend that the Mass is just another sacrifice altogether. It depends upon Calvary in two ways. First of all, 
A sacrifice normally involves an effective immolation of the victim. Okay? Immolation is one of these fancy words for slaughter. It involves some destruction of the victim. Okay? Well, there is immolation at Calvary. There is no obvious immolation in the Mass. So, in other words, the Mass depends upon Calvary for the immolation aspect of the victim. That's the first dependency. The second is this. The Mass is necessarily a memorial of the sacrifice already made on Calvary. Okay. The Mass remembers, commemorates, and in some respects symbolizes the sacrifice done on Calvary. So apart from Calvary, the Mass has nothing to commemorate. Nothing to symbolize. All right. So in two respects, the Mass is secondary and dependent upon the sacrifice of Calvary. But that doesn't make it no sacrifice at all. Okay? Why not? Okay. The theologians, before Trent ever opened its doors, realized that the heart and soul, oh, all right, the essence of sacrifice is not the immolation or destruction of the victim. That was usually just a preliminary. The essence is the oblation, which is the offering up of the victim. Right? So, lesson number one. Immolation and oblation are not synonyms. Keep that in mind. Because it took me forever to learn that. <laughs> Immolation and oblation are not synonyms. Oblation is the core and center of any sacrifice. Once the victim has been, I don't know, in some appropriate way victimized, there's no sacrifice yet until... The victim or remains thereof are offered up to God. That's what's done on the altar of the temple in the Old Testament. Okay? And that's what's done on the altar in the New Testament. Okay? Our Lord is made present by the words of consecration. Yes? And then the host is offered. Okay? Offered to God. Now then, it's not exactly the priest doing this. 
It's really our Lord himself doing this. Okay? He offers himself again to the Father without shedding his blood again. So you got the same, the blood's already shed, you got the same victim. Okay? And you've got the same celebrant. On the cross, Christ offers himself to the Father, right? Let's put it this way. The cross was awfully informal if you look at it as liturgy. <laughs> no robes, no ceremony. But our Lord offers himself to the Father on the cross. Remember, remember the important words that uh, we still hear in some of the canons of the Mass. His voluntary death. He did not have to die. He laid down his life voluntarily. All right? If anybody had said to Jesus, yeah, we're going to kill you, he could have said to them, yeah, you and how many legions of angels? Okay. You're looking at immortal life here. You can't kill me. But he can voluntarily lay it down. That's what he does. All right? And he lays it down in offering it up to the Father. Well, he does that again on the altar in the Mass. The victim is the same. The celebrant or offerer or priest is the same. The only thing that's different is the mode of oblation. Okay. On the cross, he offers himself up in a bloody manner. On our altars, he offers himself up in an unbloody manner. Okay? Now then, I can't resist throwing in, this is even before I get to Trent, I'll, I'll, I'll get there. I, I can't resist throwing in a very important distinction here, which I was missing for a long time. It, it boggled me up, I assure you. The Mass and Calvary are the same sacrifice, but they are not the same event. They're the same sacrifice, same victim, same priest. Okay? In both cases, there's an offering up. The oblation. There's a difference in manner. The difference in manner does not make a numerically distinct sacrifice. It's the same sacrifice. But it's not the same event. Okay? Now, if, it's, if it were the same event, you and I would have major intellectual headaches. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about you, but I had this headache for a while. I was trying to figure out, figure out, figure out how numerically one and the same event could happen at multiple times. Hmm. As though we were dragging an event out of first century Palestine 
by divine and mysterious means and making that very same event happen again on our altar. That's a problem. Okay. Fortunately, we don't have to solve that problem. Because nobody has ever, at least nobody in authority in the church, has ever said that the Mass and Calvary are the same event. Okay? Sometimes what we say sounds a bit like that. When we say that the Mass represents Calvary. And you think, well, we make it present again. We don't make the event present again. We make the sacrifice present again. We make the sacrifice present again by renewing it in an unbloody manner. Does that make sense to everybody? In other words, the sacrifice of the cross does not have to occur multiple times in time. Okay? It doesn't have to be a set of events. It's one event. But that one sacrifice can be renewed, okay? can prolong itself as our Lord works through his human priests to make his body and blood present on our altars again where he offers them up to the Father for our sins, for our needs, etc. Does everybody? Does that help? All right. <clears throat> this is conceptual work which was carefully done before the Council of Trent ever opened its doors. Now I want to tell you a little bit about the actual procedure which was followed at Trent. I'm not going to make a big deal out of this, but you need to know that between the time this issue of the Mass was taken up and the time we finally got the decree, which is now published in our dogma books, ten years elapsed. You mean to tell me they couldn't get their act together for 10 years? No, it wasn't that bad. Okay. In 1551, December of 1551, over a little bit into January of 1552, the theologians were charged to work up a text on the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. They debated everything. They did so. There were all kinds of big shots there. Needless to say, many bishops, many cardinals, but also the dean of the University of Louvain. Lots of big shots. And they came up with a whole text. They started with ten propositions extracted from the works of the reformers. Okay? This was Trent's usual procedure. You start with what those guys said. Okay? You go into their books, you pull out extracts. Then you run those extracts by a panel of theologians. Okay? That's what was going on in December of 1551. And the first question is, look at these extracts here. Are these propositions worthy of condemnation? 
And if so, condemnation is what? I mean, not everything gets condemned as heresy. Some things get condemned as overbold or that's called temerarious in church talk. I used to amaze my children by calling their conduct temerarious. <laughs> Sometimes things are condemned simply as bad-sounding. But in this case, all ten propositions extracted from the Reformers were viewed by the theologians as worthy of condemnation and all of them as heresy. Okay? With that much clear, they set about drafting a text and canons to go with it. Then a funny thing happened. The Council of Trent got a letter from Archduke Maurice of Saxony, a Protestant, saying, I have a bunch of Lutheran theologians here, and they want to come to your council to discuss this mass issue. Would you, would you, would you please give us safe conduct and, 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 and hold off until our guys get there? And Trent very gently and mercifully said, sure, come ahead. And eventually a couple of representatives of uh, the Duke of Saxony did make it. Uh, others were supposed to come and never did make it. Anyway, that held things up. Then the political situation turned sour. And then on top of everything else, disease broke out. And all the theologians who had been working all through December to get this document together had to leave town. Bye-bye. Plague is plague. And the political situation was so bad that Julius III, the Pope at the time, decided to suspend the operation of the council. It was not taken up until ten years later again. This time the Pope was Paul IV. And um, all the work was done again. Examination of articles drafting of canons, and so forth. And this time in the debate, some very interesting nuances came out. The bishops and the theologians at the council were somewhat at loggerheads over what to say about the Last Supper. Everybody agreed Calvary is a sacrifice, obviously. Everybody agreed the Mass is a sacrifice. As supper a sacrifice. Well, it's where the Mass was instituted. Yeah. But was it itself a sacrifice? Well, guess what? The issue was unresolved, and the Council of Trent didn't say. Okay. Most of the theologians present said, yes, it, it was itself a sacrifice. But Trent abstained because... It was the policy at the council not to define anything that was still legitimately debatable among Catholic theologians and between the schools. Okay. Next nuance. This comes from the Bishop of Feltry. I don't know what his name was. F-E-L-T-R-E. -E. He said, I don't think you should say that the man is a sacrifice. 
He said, no, I don't think you should say that. I think you should say there's a sacrifice in the Mass. In other words, a, a real sacrifice happens in the Mass. But it's better to say that than to say that the Mass itself is a sacrifice. Guess what? Trent respected the concerns of the Bishop of Feltry. And the final text says that in the Holy Mass there is a sacrifice. Okay? And I, I think probably the best way to see the, the sense of this, seems like utter nitpicking, but I think the best way to see the sense of it is if we say a real sacrifice occurs in the Mass, then at least you're headed off from thinking that everything in the Mass, from the prayers at the foot of the altar to the final dismissal, is sacrifice. Okay? And this will also head off Luther's idea that the only sense in which there's a sacrifice at the Mass is the prayers of praise and thanksgiving. He said that was a sacrifice of praise, you could say that. So the Bishop of Feltry had to let's get the prayers and praises out of the way. But let's insist that there really is a sacrifice in the Mass. And of course, everybody knows where to look for it once you try to isolate it. We're going to look for it in the canon of the Mass, right? So, anyway, with those preliminary marks aside, let me turn to the actual texts from the Council of Trent. Here's the introductory paragraph. In order that the ancient faith and teaching on the great mystery of the Eucharist may be retained in the church, unqualified and complete in every detail, preserved in its purity by a rejection of all errors and so on. This Council of Trent lawfully assembled in the Holy Spirit, dot, 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 teaches and declares that all that follows concerning the Eucharist, insofar as it is a true and unique sacrifice, is to be preached to the faithful. Okay? So the decree is about the Eucharist insofar as it is a true and unique sacrifice. Chapter 1. Uh, this is amazing. I mean, th those guys at, at, at Trent were very good at writing Latin sentences. Uh, but this one is just enormous. Okay, I will try to read it to you without taking a breath. But it is long. Here it goes. As there was no fulfillment under the Old Covenant because of the powerlessness of the Levitical priesthood, as Paul testifies, it was necessary, God the Father of mercies thus ordaining, for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was able to bring to completion all who were due to be sanctified and lead them to perfection. And so he, our Lord and God, was to offer himself once to God the Father on the altar of the cross, a death thereby occurring that would secure for us eternal redemption, but, I haven't got to the period yet, but his priesthood was not to be canceled by his death. 
And so, ah, in order to leave to his beloved spouse the church sacrifice, as human nature requires, by which that bloody sacrifice carried out on the cross should be represented, its memory persists until the end of time, and its saving power be applied to the forgiveness of sins which we daily commit. Therefore, at the Last Supper, on the night he was betrayed, as the Catholic Church has always understood and taught, he announced that he'd been appointed forever a second priest in the order of Melchizedek. He offered his body and blood to God the Father under the forms of bread and wine and handed them to the apostles under the same material symbols to be received by them, apostles, whom he was making priests of the new covenant and handed them in the priesthood do this in memory of me, etc. Period. Right. Let's just say it covers a lot of ground. Okay. First of all, it connects the Mass and Calvary to the situation in the Old Testament where the sacrifices could not secure the real remission of sins. All right. And because of that incompleteness of the old sacrifices under the priesthood of Aaron, a new priesthood is to be introduced according to the order of Melchizedek. This is what our Lord takes up. Okay? He offers himself on the cross, but unlike anybody else's priesthood, his priesthood doesn't lapse when he dies on the cross. He takes it with him into the resurrection, and into heaven. Whereas the epistle to the Hebrews says, he has entered into the heavenlies as a high priest to make constant intercession for us. Yeah. So his priesthood doesn't die, and so, in order to leave his beloved church with a visible sacrifice, as human nature requires, I'll come back to that. He instituted the Eucharist. He offered his body and blood under the forms of bread and wine to God the Father at the Last Supper. And in saying, do this, it made his apostles priests of the new covenant. All right, that's, that's a mouthful. That parenthesis in there, um, as human beings require, okay? man naturally requires a visible sacrifice. This is an important point um, in patristic teaching and also an important point in anthropology and an important point in Catholic thinking. Every religion has some sort of sacrifice. Okay? We would be in a very sad shape if we had no visible sacrifice. 
Because when you are conscious of sin, you want to be able to do something about it. Okay? All right. So he leaves the church a visible sacrifice in the form of the Mass. For after celebrating the old Passover, which the whole people of the children of Israel offered in memory of their departure from Egypt, Christ instituted a new Passover, namely the offering of himself by the church through its priests under visible signs in memory of his own passage from this world to the Father. Okay. So our Lord's resurrection, his ascension, is like the Passover from Egypt. As sacrifice was offered by the, by the Jews in commemoration of that Passover, so also Christ sets up a sacrifice in commemoration of this Passover. This is none other than that clean oblation that can be soiled by no unworthiness or evil on the part of the offerers, which the Lord foretold through Malachi as being offered among the nations. That is Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. And now it's in, what is it, the fourth canon that we have in the West these days? So that from east to west, a perfect sacrifice may be made. Okay? Yeah. One perfect sacrifice, but made everywhere renewed all over the world. And then, Trent quotes the Bible passage I explained to you when I first started out. The Apostle Paul indicates the same clearly enough in writing to the Corinthians when he says that those contaminated by sharing in the table of demons cannot be sharers in the table of the Lord, by table meaning altar in both places. Okay. Any questions about chapter one <laughs> of Trent's decree? Seeing none, I hasten along to chapter two. In this divine sacrifice performed in the Mass, the very same Christ is contained and offered in bloodless manner who made a bloody sacrifice of himself once and for all on the cross. Hence, the Holy Council teaches that this is a truly propitiatory sacrifice. Not a sacrifice of praise. A truly propitiatory sacrifice. And brings it about that if we approach God with sincere hearts and upright faith with awe and reverence, we receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How so? Because the Lord is appeased by this offering. And so he gives the gracious gift of repentance by which he absolves even enormous offenses and sins. One and the same victim is here offering himself by the ministry of his priests, who then 
offered himself on the cross. It's only the manner of the offering that's different. The theologians got it right. Trent agreed. Here it is in the dogmatic decree. For the benefits of that sacrifice, namely the sacrifice of blood, are received in the fullest measure, fullest measure through the bloodless offering. So far as the latter, anyway, from impairing the former. All right. The Mass doesn't impair the sacrifice of Calvary for crying out loud. It makes it present again and applies it. Okay? I have to break off at this point and make two remarks. Number one, Trent does not say that the Mass is another sacrifice thanks to which your sins are directly forgiven. doesn't say that. Okay. How do you get out of your sins? Baptism is a good start. And then holy confession, right? Those are the direct ways of getting rid of your sins. What does the Mass do then? It says that God, being pleased by this representation of his beloved Son to himself in body and blood, is appeased and pleased to offer you the grace of repentance. Okay? This is why you can go to Mass and pray even if you can't yet receive, even if you have unconfessed sin and dare not touch the Eucharist itself, you can still go and fruitfully pray because by any contact with that reenactment of Calvary, you are earning from God the grace well, earning grace, that sounds bad. You are getting from God as his gift the grace of repentance. Okay? Go to Mass and your penitence will be deepened. And the next time you go to confession, it might be real. And you won't be back there again three days later with the same darn sin. It might be real. You get the grace of repentance. And it says the best way to appropriate, to receive the benefits of Calvary, which really was a propitiation for all the sins of the world, the best way to receive them is to receive those benefits in this reenactment of it, in this representation of it. And I, I've got to cut this off now. So I, you know, we'll have something to talk about next week. But one final parting shot at this point. What was it exactly that Luther missed? I mean, did he just not read 1 Corinthians 10? What was it that Luther missed that he couldn't see that the Mass continued the one redemptive sacrifice 
of Calvary and made that redemption present and active again and again and again. Why couldn't he see that? Okay. The answer is a little bit deep and involves a technical expression, which I will now teach you if I haven't if you don't already know it. It's a distinction between what's called the objective redemption and the subjective redemption. Okay? I don't like the terminology, but we're stuck with it. Okay? Put it this way. Redemption on the one hand is something real in the Redeemer, that's the objective redemption. And on the other hand, it's something real in those redeemed. And that's called the subjective redemption. Okay? Now, Luther and Zwingli like to think of the objective redemption. Okay? In terms of the objective redemption, is everything done as of the... Uh, what is it, the third hour on Good Friday? Yes. It is finished. Okay. Everything is done. But you haven't gotten it yet. The merit that Christ won on the cross, the forgiveness that he won for you, the new friendship with God that he won for you, you have to get. You have to receive it. That's the problem of the subjective redemption. How does it all get to you? Luther, I couldn't completely overlook the subject of redemption because even he had to admit that you need to be baptized. All right? Imagine where Christianity would be if there were no, 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 no subject of redemption at all. Well, then we just close down all the churches and forget it. All our sins are paid for, everybody's forgiven, it's all done. Now, infinitely meritorious event is taking place. Now we can all relax. That's it. That would be some kind of grotesque universalism, huh? No. Luther admitted that in order to actually get the benefits of the redemption, there were things you had to do, like get yourself baptized. The amazing thing is that he didn't see that the Eucharist was the same sort of thing. Okay? Yeah. You need to get in touch with what Christ won for you on the cross. And the way to do that is to attend and share in and best of all communicate in the representation of his one Sacrifice. Thank you very much, Dr. Marshner. Excellent presentation. Was that good? Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was good. We'll come back together in about three or four minutes for a short Q&A. Um, Dr. Marshall, I'm just curious. A lot of Protestants have written commentaries on Scripture, and I'm just, what do they do with 1 Corinthians 10? Well, no two exegetes do quite the same. They recognize that 
Paul is in some sense talking about the Eucharist, but they'll try to avoid the inference that he's calling it a sacrifice, or implying that it's a sacrifice, or presupposing that it's a sacrifice. I've uh, heard it said that uh, the Mass is uh, basically uh, not a recreation of Calvary, but you are, in effect, at Calvary. Is that correct uh, theology or not? Well, uh, <laughs> I would be careful with that expression because, in one sense, it's true. You are at that very sacrifice that occurred on Calvary, but which is now occurring in another, in another manner. That's true. But usually when we talk about being at an event, we're talking about an event. And in that sense, no, going to church on Sunday morning is not boarding a time machine. <laughs> Professor, uh, real quickly, uh, in the Arlington Diocese, the Vatican, the Pope, we hear and see a very authentic Novus Ordo Mass. Yeah. You could give 50 reasons, but in your opinion, two or three primary ones, the liturgical abuses that ex came about after the Second Vatican Council smacks so much of, of Luther, it smacks so much of, of the so-called Reformation. What are two or three primary ones that you see that led to some of that turbulence? Yeah, well... Um. You don't want a short answer, do you? Uh, th there was a movement, uh, an ecumenical, an ecumaniac movement. Um, people who thought that the Reformation could be overcome by some great new wave of friendship after Vatican II did think that if we emphasized those aspects of the Mass that Protestants also accept when they have their communion service, emphasize those and downplay the others, that somehow uh, unity would happen. Well, it was uh, poppycock. And um, I mean, even Paul VI did not want uh, the uh, reference to the, the Mass as a sacrifice to be dropped. When uh, Cardinal Ottaviani made that famous intervention, uh, he was mainly complaining about the prefatory text uh, that came out, that, or, that was to be printed along with the, the, uh, the Novus Ordo. The prefatory text said um, all of the things that Protestants would like and nothing they wouldn't. That was his problem. But uh, Ottaviani would have a hard time denying that there's plenty, plenty of allusion to sacrifice in the text of the Novus Ordo itself, uh, especially in the, the first canon, of course, which is the old one, but also in the second and the third and the fourth. I had a student one time who thought that uh, the sacrificial character of the Mass had been abandoned or downplayed in the Novus Ordo. And, I, and he, he wanted to base his work on Ottaviani's intervention. Well, we got a hold of the intervention and we studied the whole thing. And I was able to show him that 
Ottaviani had some very good points to make about that preface. But you can't deny allusions to the sacrificial character of the Mass in the actual canons, even in the Novus Ordo. Thank you very much. All right. <laughs> All right. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.